Hi, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and today we have a very special guest with us today. His name is Jake Eakin. Some of you may have heard his story uh, from years back, but today we would like to welcome Jake Eakin. So Jake, how are you doing today? Doing wonderful. Awesome. Good to have you here. So some people might be wondering who in the world you are. Some people in our audience might not know who you are. Uh, and so I would just like this as a time because I know you've got been in the public eye uh, before and a lot of her negative things. And I think it would be great for us as Christian men to have a discussion on the God that we serve. Now, for many people know the church split here, what we do is we try to seek unity through truth. We try to, you know, and sometimes that means approaching divisive or hard and complicated topics that most people would shy away from. So uh, that's why I was like, you know what? This is a conversation I'd love to have with you. So thank you for accepting the invitation. So Jake, could you tell everyone a little bit about what you do now? Yeah, so I'm a, I, I'm a full-time ministry. We Our, our ministry is called Kingdom Culture Ministries. And the majority of what we do is, is within Washington State. We travel across the straight uh, the state, and we we minister to different churches. We work with pastors um, in order to to get the body of Christ active in the in the fight against abortion. And along with that, we also do a lot of abortion ministry as well at at, at Planned Parenthood and the other abortion mills. That's fantastic. So you so you, you essentially you work full time, and your whole goal is to abolish abortion, which is something we have multiple videos about on our channel. So uh, you're so you would say that life begins at uh, conception. Would you say is that was that your stance? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Preach, preach, preach. Okay. So uh, that's that, that's great. Now the thing is that what makes this. Uh, kind of beautifully poetic, yet also complicated for the world to understand, is a bit of where you came from. Now, I'm sure for yourself, it almost might feel like a shadow over your head, maybe, or or just something you've learned to just kind of as part of you. But, uh, you know, you being a huge, uh, you know, people call you pro-life, you have uh, stated in interviews that you are an abolitionist, which I think is a, a much stronger term, which is actually, I think, a good thing. Uh, and, pro and you also proclaim the power of the gospel and how it changes lives, and you yourself are... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for me, that's where that's what's crucial is here is the difference between what I would consider um, somebody that's a pro-life and someone that's abolitionist. And this is just and generally speaking, is that abolitionists have more of a um, gospel-centered approach in the fight against abortion, whereas the the pro-life movement takes more of a pragmatic approach against abortion, uh, basically whatever works approach. We would we would say that uh, as abolitionists, we would fight from a biblical perspective. And we'd want to be consistent with that at all costs. So essentially, yeah. So essentially, you be you're being consistent with a Christian worldview, which is the, the word of God is where this comes from first, and all. Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's why that's why we believe in a total and immediate abolition of abortion. For instance, that's why I wouldn't support a heartbeat bill or a pain bill or any other um, incremental bill because I believe that God's word is very clear that we do not. We do not make deals with the devil. We do not compromise. Uh, and in order to be consistent with the commandments of God that is very clear, thou shalt not murder. He doesn't make any exemption clauses to that. He doesn't say unless the child doesn't have a heartbeat. And in fact, the New Testament even makes it more explicit where it talks about in James that we are to, uh, it talks about orphans and the fatherless. And uh, oftentimes what I see within the pro-life movement, and I'm not, and I'm not attacking anybody here. But what I see within the pro-life movement is this tendency of abandoning the fatherless, the very people that Christ said is the least of these. They are the ones that are abandoned in the pro-life incremental bills that are put forward. That's actually... And so what I'm saying is we can't abandon any... Along along the road of abolition. That that's actually a good point because that's something I've I've uh, commented on a few times as well, which is like yes, okay, uh, fewer abortions better than more abortions, but at the same time we don't want any. Like that's that's the whole goal here. It's not oh heartbeat bill, woo, woo big yeah. pro life win. It's like no, the the pro life win is n making zero exceptions for for Amen. murder. And also remember remember as Christians we're supposed to be fighting from a biblical worldview, and part of that centric to that is the gospel, but also. Uh, Christ's commandment to go into all the nations, the Great Commission, to go uh, and um, part of the Great Commission is the command to to disciple the na to keep, teach them the commandments of God to disciple the nations, and so the fight against abortion, in my perspective, um, has to be within the confines of the Great Commission, 
and this idea that we are discipling the nations and we're teaching them to obey the commandments of, of Christ. And um, I would say that when we compromise, when we when we support a heartbeat bill, and we say that um, that we cannot, uh, you know, kill a preborn child except this, right? What we're doing is we are effectively discipling uh, the culture that it's okay to discriminate against certain image bearers of God. And I would say that, that, that that's, that's, that's where, as Christians, we can't do that. We, we, need, to, we need to embrace uh, a, biblical, um, a biblical model against the fight of abor- against abortion and be completely consistent with God's word in that. And in the process, we are effectively discipling the nation to be obedient uh, to God, uh, Christ, the commandments of Christ. So that's part of the fight against abortion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you, you put that perfectly. Um, and so one of the things that kind of sticks out to me now, uh, we'll get to your story here in a minute, because I know that's probably what some people are most curious about. But one of the things that um, kind of pops into my mind real fast is, so when you obviously are taking the fight to abortion, you're you're really uh, trying to make strides there, which we'll leave a link to anyone who wants to give to that ministry below. But for yourself, um, what, what, when people, what do you do when people sit there and say that, okay, uh, you care about uh, unborn babies more than you care maybe with, uh, like, about, like, kids in foster systems and things along that nature? Do you ever hear that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there, there are always very uh, simple answers to those types of things. Um, you know, uh, the foster care one is, 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 you know, when people ask me, how many children have I adopted? I always tell them zero, but that doesn't change the fact that abortion is murder. Right. And so it's almost this thing where people bring up entirely separate issues in order to draw the attention away from abortion. And that, and that's what almost all the pro-choice argumentation is. Absolutely. It's funny. I always, I kind of have a leg up in that conversation. Both my brothers were adopted through the foster system. We were foster parents growing up. Uh, I had multiple foster siblings and I'm like, yeah, but guess what? I'm it. You know, you're basically asking the guy who's pro, who's like trying to get rid of pancreatic cancer to focus on diabetes. These are two big. Oh, exactly. You're, you're, yeah. These are well, big issues, but they're different issues. They're different issues, and and exactly. And what I, I like to point out as well is if it, uh, I, you know, when somebody asks me those questions, I tell them um, go to Planned Parenthood and ask for assistance. Ask them for rent assistance, ask them for diapers, ask them for formula, ask them for uh, all the things that you're accusing us of not, um, you know, supporting born people with, or we only care about pre-born ch- uh, people, you know, and uh, Planned Parenthood will not help you with any of those things, but if you go to the Church of Christ, they will. Amen. Absolutely. Uh, that's a huge thing for, for and every church should, should support that. And they do. And I know that a lot of churches do. So this whole, and that's kind of a lie that our culture promulgates is the fact that the churches don't help with those things. And it's like, oh no, every church I know, you ask for those things. If you needed that help, every, church. every and, Yeah, exactly. And you know, even within our ministry, we have a team of people that at any given moment, we can reach out to them and, and get help. In fact, we had a woman who uh, messaged me privately on my Facebook page uh, two days ago, and she had decided against, she had canceled, she had, she'd been following my page for a few weeks, reading everything. Uh, the Lord was really convicting her. And so she picked up the phone, canceled her appointment, messaged me. I read her, I found her message, and she, uh, and I hooked her up with a very close friend of mine who was in, who, and she's going to get her through the whole process of adoption. She may even adopt the baby herself. That's amazing. And so that just, it just shows how the body of Christ does care about these people yeah absolutely no that's fantastic that's awesome and that's what and that's the kind of thing i I hear regularly i'm like no i I literally we have yeah i'm sure you're familiar with jeff durbin's ministry and abortions now Mm -hmm. and uh, we reached out to him uh brian and i both because there was they always offer to cover any legal fees or whatever for adoption we said if any if you run into any mother who's willing to go through that contact us we are willing to adopt you know and uh yeah and you know how many that, how many people reach out to me and say the exact same thing you're telling me? If, hey, look, if a woman 
this cancels their appointment, decides against abortion, please tell them we'll adopt their baby. That, see, exactly. And so I know a lot, but what's funny is that when I reached out to them, they responded back to both of us and they were like, hey, look, you know what's funny is that every single person has walked out has always kept their baby. We've never actually had them uh, get put up for uh, adoption, hardly ever. Exactly. And Hardly ever. Exactly. So I thought that was actually a powerful tool, a testimony, because it shows the fact that, no, God does have a way. Once the mother meets the baby, she wants her baby. And that's the way God made it. So I think that's fantastic. I mean, we could probably, honestly, we could probably have a whole, like, two-hour discussion just on this alone, because I... Oh, on any, on any of these. Yeah, I, yeah. I am like I I'm there, man. I, especially with this topic, it's something I'm super passionate about. So, um, anyway, so the biggest thing that, as I said, was talked about earlier, the the poetic part and maybe the the controversial part for some people is that your you know is your history of when you were a young boy. Uh, you were when you were a young boy, you were convicted of secondary murder at the age of twelve and tried as an adult. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, we, what, would you mind sharing a little bit of like what all that looked like, what all happened there, and feel free to, you know, <laughs> be as gentle or forward as you'd like to be about yeah, that. I'll, yeah, I'll be very, I'll be very gentle in, in, in how I describe it. Uh, the details are all online; people can look up the case. And 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 for your listeners, so they know that uh, I never try to, I never tried to um, uh, lessen my role in any uh, in my past. In fact, I try to actually paint it in its darkest possible colors I can so that against that backdrop, I can paint the picture of the gospel and what Christ can accomplish. But at the age of 12, uh, along with my a childhood friend of mine, we were, we were involved in, in, a, in a murder of, a, of another boy. Um, and, and, we were, we, and we were... We were convicted of murder. Uh, I was convicted of second degree murder by complicity. I received 14 years in prison. And yeah. And, and, and feel free to ask any of the questions that deal with any of the details in between those. No, that's, that's fine. Uh, I mean, uh, that, and so, I mean, this is something, so the biggest thing, and that's what's, um, and what that whole situation is actually, is when I read the story and as I read on the case, I, it was, it was just, I, there was so much tragedy that was involved in it. And one of the things that did stick out to me was the fact that you don't downplay anything, any part of it. You don't build any excuses for anything. And that was actually one of the things that left me impressed because I was like, if somebody, if this person was, as sick and still deranged as people try to make a paint you online sometimes it was like well somebody who was that way would be the narcissist taking the narcissist route trying to justify all their justify yeah. every action blame everyone else and although there are certain facts to it that that, that kind of still um scream at me personally um but when all this so you, you weren't the one who killed um Craig, you weren't the one who killed him, but um, you were kind of, to a large degree, kind of a wrong place, wrong time, but didn't respond the way you should have. So uh, at least that's what it looked like when I read. And, and also, I did, and and, and I did um, participate in the in the murder of Craig at the very end. Right. Um, right. Well, yeah, because you said, you, yeah, you after the situation took place, you did respond uh, <laughs> uh, violently in that situation. That was, I mean, obviously, uh, when I, I, I was trying to think of my, what would it be like for myself at 12 years old to be in those shoes when I just witnessed this thing happen? How would I respond? And that's one of the things that I think when people are looking at this, how would you, how would you respond? You know, it's easy, it's so easy on the outside to make these claims. And for those of you guys who don't know, uh, essentially his, it was his friend who attacked this, uh, his other friend. And uh, in the end, um, after the killing had already taken place, uh, Jake, you what took a branch and you you struck the body, right? Okay, and so and then you participated in hiding, and I know you you basically you came up with a story as any twelve year old would, and then eventually you were so convicted you confessed, right? Is that basically what yeah, took about place? Fourteen months later, yeah. Oh. About fourteen months later, finally, uh, I came forth with what um, had really happened to Craig. Right, and so, and that alone show. I mean, that shows uh, work and character. But if you don't mind, uh, what were your religious? So, because one of the most interesting things that people don't seem to understand is, without a Christian worldview, a horrible tragedy like you, like you participated in at such a young age. At, without a Christian worldview, there's actually nothing wrong with anything. You know, there without God, there's no morality. You know, God dictates what is right and wrong. And if we're just, if there's no God, and we're all 
evolved monkeys, then we all just simply disagree mm -hmm. from time to time on anything right or wrong. Yeah, we have our personal preferences. Ex exactly. That, there's, there's no inherent objective right and wrong. Exactly. So with that idea, was what when this took place, obviously you were probably at a, a you've mentioned a lot as well that you ha used to have a lot of anger, just anger built up. You said you don't even know exactly as to why there's this anger um, that was built up, uh, especially up into your 20s. Uh, so what was your religious views or your views about God during that time when you were younger? Yeah, so growing up, I, I, I probably never stepped foot in a church. The only exposure I had to religion at all was a family Bible that had been passed down um, from, my, from my dad's uh, dad. And I do remember as a child being very fascinated with the book, though, I, even though I couldn't read it. I was very fascinated by it. Um, but that was my only exposure to religion at all growing up. And it wasn't until um, later on into my 20s that I ever actually picked up the Bible and started reading it. Okay, so, so you essentially, so did your parents teach you that God existed or was it just all like kind of agnostic? Uh, it, the, yeah, there was, it, was, it was very agnostic. There, we, I, like I said, I never stepped foot in a church once as a child. Uh, God very rarely got mentioned. Um, at all, and it, a part of that had to do with my father. Uh, his his dad had been a minister, a pastor, uh, who had been a very abusive to my dad and had beat him and uh, very severely, and so that kind of affected the dynamic, the religious dynamic. Growing up, my my dad didn't really want anything to do with the church, didn't want anything to do with Christianity or God. And do you think that, and I just out of curiosity, do you think that not having a godly worldview at all, like the, the Imago Dei, you know, being created in the image of God, do you think that affected you at all with the events that happened to you when you were a child? Yeah, maybe not directly, because, you know, you don't have the comprehension of that, right? But I think maybe indirectly, because when I did, um, later on, which we'll get to that in a little bit, um, when I was in the when I was in the county jail for the escape that I ended up being charged with, um, I once I started reading through the Bible, and the concepts must have been really the grace of God because the con the, the very uh, uh, um, comprehensive the whole scope of the Bible began to kind of make sense to me very rapidly, and the whole idea of the image of God that we all bear the image of God and that's where our value came from. That and that came from me. I was also reading the Dietrich Bonhoeffer book, which it talked about that in there. And so that whole idea was very um, almost revolutionary to me. It, it really did change and give me a it established um, an objective standard for human value that we're all made in God's image, and that's where our value comes from. And it did change the way that I even looked at everything in the world. In fact, it, it, um, Later on, getting in, into the fight against abortion, that was directly tied to that. And I would also, I would, I would, I would contribute part of it with being my past as well, with what happened to Craig um, and everything that happened before. You know, because this this idea, Diedrich Bonhoeffer played a big role in in in, um, in my growth as a Christian. And I remember him uh, basically interposing and, and speaking up for the Jews, being a voice for them. And for me, that whole idea of interposition, of standing in the gap for those that are being oppressed, that it was such an amazing and awesome idea. And I looked back at what had happened to Craig, and I wish that I could go back and and rescue him from, you know, from death. And so that that is something that motivates me when I go out. That that's why I spend so much, you know, thousands of hours outside of a, a, a um, you know, abortion mills, pleading for preborn children, pleading for these these. Uh, these image bearers of God who have no voice for themselves, who can't be visible for themselves, is because part of it is, part of it is directly tied to the fact that I wish I can go, that, you know, there's this longing to go back and, and try to rescue Craig from what happened to him. I mean, that makes sense to me. I mean, that, that's the thing is like, if you came from no God and there's all, you almost, and also being put in prison and I, you spent some time in solitary, which I would like to talk to you about here in a minute. Like you came from basically a lot of nihilism, essentially your life became a very, very, you know, there was probably no purpose or point after, yeah. after a lot of that. Yeah. And not that, not, and of course, and I know you wouldn't paint yourself as the victim here, but I, and I'm not saying you no, are the victim at all. at all. Uh, but at the same time, we can acknowledge the facts. You know, we can acknowledge 
the simple facts in the room. I think that's one of the issues that people would have with this conversation is, oh, you know, you're, you're making him the victim. It's like, no, we're, we're having. Yeah, we don't want to do that. Remember, we, we understand the gospel properly. None of us are victims. We're all culprits in this. Exactly. In this mess, right? Mm-hmm. And so that that's crucial that that the that the conversation go from that angle. I think. Exactly. Absolutely. I and I, I agree. You no, know, I'm not. I'm not an innocent victim in what happened to Craig. Exactly. You know, I, I, in fact, I I would say that, I, and I think this is one of your questions later, but I think we could talk about it a little bit here to establish as we go forward, is that people ask me was, um, you know, if I thought that the 14 year sentence was too much, or you know, if I, however they want to put that question. And I actually have always said that I didn't, that I deserved worse for what happened to Craig, that, you know, I do believe that, um, that for the crime that I played, even the role that I played in Craig's murder, um, that I, that I am a murderer that deserved death. Right. And, um, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so it's all, I believe that it's only the grace of God that I'm sitting in front of you right now. And it's one, also one of the reasons why I'm so enthusiastic about, uh, serving the Lord is because I have been given this second chance to serve Lord when I believe that ultimately I should be dead for my sins. But by the grace of God, I'm in, I'm sitting in front of you and I have this chance to serve the Lord, to be a father, to be a husband. And so I want, I want to seize that. And I want to, I want to live life, uh, you know, to the fullest and trying to glorify God. You know, and that's, and that's actually what speaks the most to me now. I know you had, uh, and obviously, you know, I, I know you've talked about how you think about what happened every day. You, you know, you, your, your heart goes out to them. I, obviously you, you grieve. A lot of people, I've even seen people say, oh, clearly he doesn't grieve. He doesn't really feel bad for what he did. It's like, that's, oh, you, you go ahead. You look like you're, a... yeah, that's, that's a hard, that that's a hard one for me because the fact is, is we're so far removed from what happened to Craig. Right. And, 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 and it's not like I'm saying that I'm, that I lack empathy for what happened to Craig at all, because every day I grieve over what happened. Right. But there almost becomes this protection thing. And I've tried to explain this to numerous people is that you almost, you almost like suppress a lot of like the, a lot of the pain of it, a lot of like, you suppress it because in order, almost a survival instinct. Well, in order to function, you'd have to. Yeah. Yeah. The emotional aspect of it, but yes. Um, you know, internally people can't see that, you know, the turmoil of that and the, and the going before the Lord and repentance and, and, um, and all that people can't see that aspect of it. But, and so they think that, you know, I lack emotion or empathy for what happened to Craig, but a lot of that is simply that it's been 20 years since this happened. And there's an, there's almost a suppression of emotions in order just not to be overcome by it constantly. That makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I mean, as someone, I have, um, you know, I've I've had a past. I came from a, a also an abusive home, and it's one of those things where you know a lot of things with me. I have to suppress a lot of things that I did, and a lot of things that happened to me as well. And it's just, and that's kind of what you have to do when when horrible, when whether you're complicit in it, whether you're the victim of it, you have to learn how to move on from it. And that usually involves some amount of suppression. So I think that's a oh yeah yeah I destroy myself by constantly yeah exactly, which is you know um, that's no way for anyone to live. Now this is. A, not on here, uh, but have you ever been able to have a conversation at all with the family, or have they ever reached out to you, or anything like that, or are you not allowed to? I'm not allowed to. There, there was the only interaction I've ever had with them, uh, and of course they had to agree to the plea agreement that I that I ultimately took, um, that I pled guilty to, and uh, I, I was able to read an apology letter to them in court before I was sentenced. But besides that. There, there is a court order for no contact between me, uh, the Sorger family, Evan Savoy, uh, and his parents, and, and everyone else involved. Gotcha. Okay, so that's what that's what I was gathering uh, from what I was looking at it. Which, but but also, but 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 uh, but to add to that, I would I would love the opportunity at some point in the future, and this it is a possibility, you know, in the future that uh, being able to sit down and uh, with the Sorger family have that conversation you, you know and that's um because there's that there was that one situation that happened a while ago where one person was wrongfully killed and the woman just get, went up to the killer and gave him a hug uh, uh what was that a couple years ago and i just thought that was such a beautiful moment of like wow there's that's that's grace that's that's christ that right there and so i oh i really i really do believe that i think that that that's as christians that needs to be we talk about the gospel that's how the gospel works you know i always uh, somebody that's probably my favorite biblical character is paul and I, in a lot of ways, I can identify with it. I was going to say, I can't ways. imagine why. Um, yeah, but 
I, I did identified with him even as even as I sat in the county jail cell by myself and was reading through the epistles, especially the book of Acts. I really did identify with him. And, you know, uh, he was a person that, you know, participated in the in the in the killing of Christians before he was converted. And you can only imagine this is how the gospel works, is that as he as he goes, as he enters the gates of heaven, how those people, how those Christians that he helped participate in killing are going to just celebrate by the fact that, you know, their killer is now uh, uh, became one of the greatest missionaries the world's ever seen. Absolutely. Um, and that, that, you're right. That's how the gospel works. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't think I, we, we talked about the people that, that harassed me on my page, you know, and, and for me, it's taught me a lesson that if it wasn't for the grace of God, that I, that would be me or if not worse. Right. And so it's taught me to have grace towards those that, you know, persecute you, those that insult you because they do not understand like you and I do the power of the gospel power of the gospel to transform even the worst of sinners uh to radically transform their lives from the inside out they don't understand that entire they don't understand the idea of grace they don't understand the idea of god's mercy and how the gospel works and his sacrifice and his love and so for me it's like you have to have you have to be you have to you have to have a principle of long suffering and love towards those that persecute you because they do not they're they they do not understand. They do not have a comprehension. They will never understand you or me. They'll never understand Jake Eakin until they have, until God has radically transformed their own lives with the power of the gospel. Uh, and so it does. It teaches me to have grace to them. Well, absolutely. And that's kind of what was sticking to me, uh, sticking out to me. Like when I was looking, I'm like, wow, this, if there, there's ever a page that shows the contrast between a Christian worldview and a, and a world, sinful worldview. Oh, it, it would, yeah. honestly, it was the comment section on your page. I was like, wow, this shows the drastic difference. Yeah, you see it play out there. Yeah, right? absolutely. I think it's, a, it's an amazing thing. It's like, it brings it out. So I don't know what it is. I think, I think, okay, you, I think this is what it is. I think you can, you can, you know, the world can understand the idea of forgiveness, right? I mean, they'll forgive somebody. I mean, they understand that God can forgive, they, but, uh, but, but only kind of the people they would forgive. You know, the, the thief or the person that lied or, you know, uh, the person that wronged them. They could forgive that. But the idea that God could take, you know, a murderer and wrap him in his grace and forgive him, that idea, that's where the scandal of grace comes in. That whole idea is scandalous to them. They don't understand that how somebody that is apparently good in their in, in their in their in their standards could go to hell, and then somebody that participated in murder could get grace and go to heaven. They don't understand that idea because they don't understand that the Bible is very clear that none of us are good, that all of us deserve death, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And it's, no, it's, it's nothing that we do. There's no righteousness in us. It's only the grace of God that can ultimately bring us back into a relationship with God. Now, that's, you know, and you, you touched on so much there that it's such, I mean, that you, it's the living new creation in the gospel that we get to live out. It's, it's, the, it's the grace of God that creates us this way and that makes us, all my righteousness is due to him, right? It's all, it's God, it's Christ's mm -hmm. righteousness in me. And so I get, it's all imputed yep, to you. And it's, and it's crazy because it, when, you know, like you said, it's that you see that, that contrast with the world. Of course, the irony on toward me is the fact I was even having a, a conversation with someone on your page and by conversation, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was one of those things where I'm like, okay, well, how do you justify one over the other? Like, you know, if you're, you're, you're advocating for murder of babies, but yet, you think that's okay, but yet you'll condemn this man. And I just don't, you know, you can't really square that circle. Um. <laughs> oh, you cannot square it. No, no. And you know, that the, the thing is, is I've always said that the people that troll my page, they aren't, they aren't, I'm going to be bold here because I really believe this. I don't believe they're actually there because of my past necessarily. I think that what has happened is, is there's somebody that is a murderer been saved by grace where and i could have gotten out and been and and, and campaigned for abortion act, uh, abortion rights and they would have forgave me but the fact that i have gotten out and i've touched the idol of abortion because and not only that but on top of that 
a murderer having the audacity to call, to be honest about abortion, to them that sends them into rage. And that's kind of what I was, I, I was observing too. I was like, this is, it's just the golden calf. It's, you know, it's the, it's, I touched yeah. It. It, How dare I, a murderer, touch there. Yeah, and I thought that was, I, I think that's actually a, a great way to put it, and I think that's exactly what it was. I was like, yeah, it's just the fact that people are mad, the fact that you're going after abortion. Um, and so, therefore, they ha they think they have the Achilles heel to be able to throw on your face. So, um, I, we could talk there all day. So, got, now, I guess, so, when you got, so you, obviously, you were tried as an adult at 12 years old, and I think this, the, your whole story just, just it, it just oozes with grace of, of God throughout it. Um, so, you went to prison but you you served a long time in solitary confinement uh and that was uh what was it 14 months uh for the first time <laughs> and then we'll yeah so yeah you talked about kind of the anger i had and i think that was just kind of built up um i because that that wasn't me as a child I was a very you know average kid very sweet people that knew me i even i look back now as a grown man i can look back and i can say that it was very a uh, sweet kid, you know, just loved everybody. But uh, after I was sentenced, I kind of found myself in this place where I was like, I had 14 years for me. That's longer than I was even had been alive at this point. And uh, being thrown into these these uh, this this prison system, this juvenile prison system, I, they're 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 very rough places. And so, almost as a means of survival, I had to defend myself. And so, I ended up finding myself getting into different uh, into trouble and. Uh, uh, different altercations and I found myself in the hole numerous occasions and how that would work is uh, I was in a juvenile prison but when, but when I got an infraction that's what they called it they would ship me to the adult prison where I would serve time in isolation and so uh, yeah there was, a, there was one time where it was 14 months and I got out and I was only out for like two days and went back for another I think nine months so there was a large segment of time that I spent in isolation. And during that time, I, I just, I devoured books. I devoured practically anything you can imagine. History, religion, uh, philosophy, you could name it. I probably read it. Um, I, and I taught myself how to write very well. Uh, and I basically just educated myself during there. And after that, after that last nine month segment, I stayed out of trouble for the remainder of my sentence. So, I mean, that, and that's like, do you think that affected, I mean, you just got, I mean, you were, you were, you were complicit in a murder, uh, tried as an adult, then stuffed kind of by yourself. Do you think this had any kind of effect on your mental state at all? Did, did, or the system in general, do you think it was like, in some way wronged you or uh, hurt you in certain ways of that no, way? Or? No, you know what? No, I don't think so. You know, in fact, I would say that the time I spent in isolation actually helped improve me. Um, it did the exact opposite of what you would expect. Uh, the time that I spent in there gave me a lot of time to reflect on life. And I did. I, 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 I did not. I didn't just spend it reading novels and fic, uh, nonfiction or fiction. I sat and read, you know, history, the presidents, the uh, countries and wars and history and religion and that and, and got into politics. And, you know, I, I read all the world religions. And during that time, it kind of like there was like a there was like a refining that took place in my personality, you know, where the getting in trouble and that type of thing kind of, I, I had matured beyond that. And so I would say that spending that amount, that amount of time in isolation actually had a positive impact in my life. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that's what would almost be the natural thing if you're a, any kind of reasonable person, you taking that time to be able to think and meditate and really um, mm -hmm. do some inward introspection. So that's good. I mean, that's what I was like. I was like, man, at, at, with someone like on, uh, I mean, you were kind of, you could have gone either direction, right, when you were in there. Uh, and Oh, yeah, easily, easily could have gone either direction. I mean, that's. And remember, I wasn't a, I wasn't a Christian at this time. And I mean, I, I, and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't seeking after righteousness either, you know. You were just seeking it probably. Basically, I was just, I was just, I was just uh, gathering knowledge just for the sake of, you know, passing. Yeah, time. knowledge for knowledge's sake, and yeah, what else yeah, are you going to yeah, do in there? I had no purpose for it. That makes sense. So, um, and then just real, this is kind of off the cuff. Uh, one random question, because I'm sure people wonder, uh, since obviously you're not able to connect with the family and uh, do anything there because of um, the restrictions. But whatever happened to your old friend who was at who? who 
like joined who was part of this whole horrible situation okay yeah so evan savoy he he was actually released a few weeks ago from prison he he uh, he pled guilty. He originally was convicted of first-degree murder, received 30 years in prison. Uh, he, he, was, he, he, he received a retrial, uh, and because the county didn't want to go through the process of, of, of another uh, very costly trial, they gave him a second-degree murder uh, a plea agreement, where, which, and he received the maximum sentence of 20 years, and just a few weeks ago was released. Gotcha. Okay, and I'm gonna and so yeah, I'm gonna guess outside of that, you have no other uh, contact as to what happened there. No, yeah, no contact. Okay. That's yeah. I mean. No, and I, I don't know anything about where he's at in life. You know where. Well, hopefully he found the Lord like you did. So. Um, yeah, great. Yes. Okay. So uh, um, I guess so. It was during your imprisonment. This is what what struck me as also very interesting about your story. It wasn't. Uh, you know, sometimes there's like chaplains, there's uh, little church groups that get together and, you know, lead people to Christ in these jails. I've been part of jail ministries and whatnot. Uh, and it's funny because it wasn't even that. You accepted Christ during your imprisonment. And so could you tell us how you ended up essentially just through God's word, how he led you to himself? Yeah. Uh, so I finished out my sentence. Uh, well, I I finished out the majority of my sentence and was, and was um, released to a work release facility. And for, I spent about three months there and I had a job in the community, but it, that, that experience was, was somewhat overwhelming for me. Just the very basic things in life that, you know, you and I take it for advantage were just extremely hard for me to wrap my mind around just everyday things. And so I, I got overwhelmed very quickly. And one day I, left my job and uh, effectively escaped from the work release. And I, I hitchhiked to Quarter, uh, Quarter Lane, Idaho, uh, which was like 200, 300 miles. I then got, I then purchased a gray, uh, Greyhound ticket and to Vir Virginia. And along the route there, uh, the U.S. Marshals intercepted me. I was extradited back to uh, Washington State to face first-degree escape charges. On, you know, so I finished out my original sentence. The day I would have been released from prison, uh, they threw me on a, you know, a chain bus to the county jail, you know, where I faced a maximum of another five years. So, I mean, I the thing is, when I first said that, when, so when I was first reading up on your story, I was like, why would you run when you're so close to the end? And then it hit me. I was like, this guy has literally been in prison. And in the system longer than he's been alive at this point. So I could imagine. Yeah, it was extremely hard to, it was, it, I, I don't think that a lot of people would understand, it would seem dumb, right? Because even to me now, it seems just, just the epitome of idiocracy to, you know, escape when you have 90 days left, right? But what I, the only thing I contribute to is that, is the fact that it was all overwhelming. I mean, I couldn't even pump gas. I mean, just the littlest thing. And 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 uh, all the all the responsibilities that they were throwing at me were just a little too much for me, and so just out of just out of panic, I kind of ran, you know, it was just too much, uh, you know. And I immediately regretted it, but at that point, I'm already on the run, right? So, might as well make the most for it. At that point. <laughs> I'm taking my chances. I'm going for the hills, <laughs> right? I went, you know, and I went for it, and I, they 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 ended up capturing me in South South uh, South Dakota, Rapid City, South Dakota. So I made it a couple thousand miles before they captured me, you know. Um, but in the end, I, they, threw, uh, they threw me in a county jail in Yakima, Washington. And this is just one of the worst county jails. In fact, the very first day I was there, I witnessed uh, in, the, in, the, in the pod I was in, it was a gang unit. And, I, and there was a, a, they threw a rival gang member into the pod and uh, two other people, opposing rivals, murdered him. were just right there in the pod in front of everybody. So that, you know, that's where I found myself. Uh, the top floor of one of the worst county jails in the, in the country. And, but when I entered my cell, it was almost like this, uh, almost like a divine appointment kind of on the floor of my cell. There were three books. Uh, one of the Bible, uh, uh, Eric Metaxas Bonhoeffer book and the journals of Jim Elliott, who was a missionary to the Ecuadors in the spirit of death. And so I started reading the Bonhoeffer book. And like I said earlier, I was really influenced by the life of Diedrich Bonhoeffer and his stand against uh, 
uh, against the Third Reich and on behalf of the Jew, uh, the Jewish people. Uh, and that compelled that that led me to reading the Bible kind of with more for the first time because I'd read the Bible before, but not really with an intent of pursuing, you know, uh, truth. And so I began to read through the Bible. I read from Genesis. I just started from Genesis and read to Re read all the way through to Revelation. And after I was done, I was just mesmerized by the whole thing that I started over again. And, and in the six months that I spent in that county jail, I, I read through it once a month. And and the book of the Romans chapter three really had an impact on me. Just the idea of uh, of what Christ accomplished at the cross. And I think it was one evening, uh, January 7th, where I was reading Romans 3. I was absolutely overwhelmed by the, you know, the idea of God's grace. And I fell on the floor of my jail cell, cried out to God. And when I rose from the, from the floor of my jail cell, the only way I can describe it is I felt, I, 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 I believed that, I, I, not believed, I, I knew I was born again. I knew that the old Jake Eakin was dead and now an entirely a new person that with totally new desires, totally new uh, passions, you know, was uh, was alive and wanted to serve the Lord. Uh, yeah, I, that, I know that feeling very well because I accepted Christ when I was 17. And after I was doing all, I was, I was involved, I was, I had more anger and hatred than anyone probably could have ever had. And uh, I was involved in all sorts of things I shouldn't have been involved in. And I distinctly remember standing up from the floor and it was about midnight, and I distinctly remember this, that that whole idea of you know, um, behold, all things are become new. Really, is true, uh, and that's and that's one of the biggest testaments of, of God. If anyone actually truly uh, accepts the Lord, they would know the fact that man, there is nothing like that transformation that takes place. Yep. So yeah, there's no I, there's no way to understand Scripture unless you've been born again, because you don't understand the the. The kind of the, the change of, of, of passion and desire, you know, you know, uh, you know, whenever I hear a Christian say where, where they almost like try to make excuses for sin, I'm, I'm like, wait a second. But if, if you had truly understood God's grace, if you had truly understand what the Bible's talking about and the gospel and what Christ accomplished on the cross, you would not be making excuses for those things, you know, and it. it for me, you, the, the Bible just doesn't make sense unless you have truly been born again. Right. The Messiah had to die just to forgive you of your sins. Like, like wrap your head around. Just to forgive you of your sins. If, yeah, and then once you understand that concept, you know, and once you truly repent and once you truly put your faith in Christ, there's your whole entire dynamic of your life changes. Uh, the, the, the things you once desired, the things you once found pleasing, the sins that you once lived for. I mean, the only way to put, that I can put it is you grow to hate those things and the things that are pleasing to God, that glorify God, that advances kingdom on the earth. Those are the things that you want to do. Absolutely. That's what repentance. Yeah, and that's and that's the whole thing. That's that's it in a nutshell. And so that's why you know, if anyone who's watching this, by the way, if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ and followed the gospel, I we'd encourage you obviously to do it because you truly can't experience the the true joy of living in God's will until you do that. So, um, but uh, real quick, so you eventually, so uh, okay, you you went through, you went to jail, you know, you you then tried to escape once you got into a work release program. Then you got five more years. You accepted Christ. How old were you? When you accepted Christ? Well, so I, I didn't receive five years. So oh, I thought you uh, okay. I, I I received one year and only served six months. Oh, okay, um, okay. Yeah, so I uh, you know I got I got kind of I got kind of lucky on that one. Um, I, I I served six months and at this point I was twenty six years old. Okay, and how old are you now? Twenty nine. Twenty nine. No kidding. Uh, wait, when was your birthday? Uh, November. November. November ninety. Yeah. Uh, I I'm a I'm a June ninety one. So you got me. Um, all right. I was like, wait. I, I thought when I was looking at your pictures, like this guy looks like about my age. So um, anyway, so you eventually uh, somehow started talking to a childhood friend of yours uh, who ended up later on being your wife, which is fantastic. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah. So how did that all we go? Met, I, we met when I was nine years old. Uh, and we were, re we were friends from the beginning. Our, our, our dads worked together. They started a business together. Uh, she was my character witness at my trial. 
uh, and st- and we were friends the entire sentence. But she was act so she there was no romantic aspect to this, though. She was she was actually in the process of during my time in prison. She was actually uh, in the process of wanting to transition to be a man. So she was part of the transgender LGBT community. Whoa, that's a layer I didn't know about. Yeah. So she was trans. Okay. Wow. Um, that we didn't go through the process of trans. Well, clearly. <laughs> started back then. It was a little harder process to do. You had to do counseling, and uh, you know, the, the, you had to actually jump through a lot of hoops to actually get to the point of transitioning. So uh, before she could get, you know, before she could finish all of her counseling in that, uh, what happened was the Lord just plucked her out. Uh, she she knew some friends that lived in Colorado, and she went. She kind of found herself in a really uh, difficult place. And so she reached out to them and went and stayed with them uh, by the Arkansas River. They were starting a, a ministry out there, a river rafting ministry out in Colorado. And uh, she stayed with them for multiple months. And they accepted her. They told her, look, you could stay here as, you know, a man or a woman. We're going to love you no matter what. We're not going to, like, we're not going to push you out. You know, you could just stay with us and we'll, we'll show you the great. We'll just we'll just show you love and God's grace. Right. Well, uh, living with them in the uh, after the three months, she decided that she wanted to surrender her life to Christ. She was baptized and she came back to Washington State and started uh, an intern at her church and went to Bible college and all that. Wow, that that just got so many more layers to it than I than I knew. Um, so she was tra- so that basically, no wonder why everyone hates you so much. You uh, you went straight oh, yeah, up yeah, against yeah. So, all the liberal idols. <laughs> all the liberal idols are thrown in. Wow. And, and and according to them, according to them, you know, I even though my Marissa was saved way before me, and I had no influence on that whatsoever. According to them, I'm a monster that made her go through. Uh, you know, uh, conversion therapy and all that, even though I've came out and said, I don't believe in, you know, I don't think that people in the LGBT community need conversion therapy. I believe they need the gospel of Christ just like anybody else. Amen. Wow. That is, that's wow. So that just, that's uh, incredible. So God has just been, there's so, this is what, when you just know how there is that God is so true and so real because like you can't make up these stories. That's, that's amazing. So you got, you both of you are, are walking people who have experienced the great gospel. Um, you know, there's an, yeah. And, and you know, it re- and for me, you know, I look at it and it is surreal to me because if I look back at, uh, me and my wife, you know, say 10 years ago or whatever, before either of us knew Christ. I mean, there's no way that you're going to look at those two people and say, hey, there's real potential there, you know, but that's the people that God chooses to take and use for his glory. Absolutely. I actually, shoot, I could relate with that to a little, when I married Callie, uh, I remember when we first got together, everyone at Bible college was like, really, Will, the rebel guy with Callie, the angel (laughs) child? Are you kidding me? (laughs) Uh, If you met, if you, if you met Brian and Stacy, you would get a kick out of it because Brian's the mellow one and Stacy's the one with the biggest personality on planet earth. That's really funny. So you're right. God takes these situations that seem highly unlikely and he could just mold it, mold it. He is the, he's God. What do you, what do you expect? So. Yeah, I mean, the only way I could put is he takes the foolish things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so all right. So you, so you fell in love. Now, how long have you all been? So, first off, how long have you been out? I've been out for. I I I, I, I was released, if I remember right, uh, February two thousand seventeen. Okay. All right. So a couple. So only a few years. And so, how long have you been married then? I got married within a couple months. Wow. All right. And you guys have children. It looked like right. Two children. Beautiful. That is fantastic. Man, you got a baby train quick. You you move you like right when you got out, you just moved well, along, man. If you can't convert them, you make them. <laughs> I could I could get I could get behind that. <laughs> um, so that's uh that's fantastic. That's so you uh, you know what's great about that too is the fact that right when you got out, you know, you just kind of hit life running and now you're running around the entire state of Washington going after abortion and so you really are it's this your life has been just hearing it from here it's just crazy from the outside looking in. But um so let's I guess uh, when all this when it came out once you were first out, what did you do? Like, uh, you've only been doing this. Yeah, pro- oh. I got out. Go ahead. Yeah, so I didn't, I, I remember when I got out, I had never, 
at this point, I'd never even thought about abortion. That was not something that I even remotely ever even considered standing against, fighting against anything. But I got out and I was, you know, I'd already made this uh, reservation that this, uh, you know, I'd already dedicated my life to Christ. I was like, I'm going to serve him one way or another. Right. But I did find myself kind of like a place of limbo. That's the only way I can describe it, where I wasn't really sure what God's will was. Um, but that changed pretty quickly. Uh, one day, uh, Marissa and I were sitting on the couch together and I was I was on YouTube and I came across the video of 11 Christians that sat down in front of an abortion mill in Kentucky on Mother's Day. And they were arrested and they, they, they wound up saving a baby that day. But they were arrested and there was, a, there was this moment in this video that I was watching where Rusty Thomas, who's now one of my uh, mentor of mine, uh, he looked over at his son, Jeremiah Thomas, who and you may have heard of him as well. He, uh, it was a pro, pretty high profile uh, story of him getting cancer and uh, he, he got a make a wish thing. Mm. And, uh, and his, make, his wish was to abolish abortion in Texas. And the governor agreed that they would put that on the Republican agenda. So there's that story, but, but, uh, but Jeremiah, so this is, this is before I knew them. I've seen this video and, uh, Rusty, sit, Rusty Thomas is sitting on the sidewalk with handcuffs on and looks over at Jeremiah and the camera, the camera captures this look on Jeremiah's face. Rusty asked him, how's your heart, son? And Jeremiah just had this very proud look on his face and something about that really broke my heart and it really put abortion right it just broke my heart for preborn children in it and uh i think like a week or two later we were outside we went to planned parenthood for the first time me and my wife wow and so is that was that the very beginning of you getting directly involved in the pro-life movement then and not, and really pushing for yeah. this yep so then how did so did how did it come about that you got to start doing this full time because that seems like quite a crazy transition yeah yeah, I had a number of jobs. Well, you know, I was doing ministry, but I, you know, I had a full-time job as well to provide for my family. Uh, it was a, about a year, maybe two years, a year and a half ago. Can't remember exact time frame here. Uh, the Lord put on my mind this idea of uh, called Church Arise, and uh, I, I, I planned a, a conference rally type thing in Spokane, Washington, where people from all across the country came in, flew in. And we just flooded the streets of Spokane and tried to bring awareness to the abortion. Uh, and it was after that that a few people sat me down and told me that I might consider getting into full-time ministry. Um, and so I, I prayed about it. And at this time, I had a really good job. I was actually selling farming equipment. And so it wasn't something that, you know, was necessarily in my heart to do because I had a very comfortable job that I could provide my family with and you know, jumping into ministry, it wasn't like I had like a position where I'd make income. It, me getting in the ministry would basically be me, you know, stepping out in faith that the Lord would provide for us. But the Lord, you know, made it pretty clear that He wanted that He wanted us to do this. So me and my wife decided, you know, I quit my job and got into uh, ministry full time, and the Lord's been faithful to, uh, to provide our needs since then. That's fantastic. And that's that's really, you know, a powerful thing too. just the idea of stepping out on faith there, especially when you have a family to provide for. I mean, I get it. I, I'm a pastor, but I actually work full time outside of my church. Um, it's a very small country mm -hmm. church so that, you know, they can't afford much and the building's falling apart. They have bigger things to worry about. Uh, so, um, you know, I work in just the idea of like, okay, by the way, quit. And now do this. Trust God takes care. You know that's that takes a lot of faith for anybody. So um, yeah, and you know a lot of our, and we live very mod modestly. Um, you know we live we live. You know, our, our basically we've we've told the Lord that you know we just want to serve Him. We just want to you know what wherever He's going to take us, we're going to go. Now, what I find so beautiful about this, obviously, is you were uh, a long time ago. You were involved in taking a life uh, and and now you are involved in saving them and i just find that to be the beautiful uh poeticness of the whole situation. And I know that when it comes to this, you aren't trying to redeem yourself. It's, I, it's, that's not your motivation, which 
because nope. there's nothing we can do to redeem ourselves. Our, 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 our agent is as filthy rags, right? So, um, you know, it's not you trying to be, uh, you know, your, your heart's very obvious. It's not you trying to be more righteous. It's not you trying to redeem yourself. It's just, for me, it's just, uh, it's a plan that only God obviously could have created that a man who was once involved in taking a life would now be involved in saving them. And uh, whether that's God go, uh, calling it penance or whatever, you know, however, God's handling it on his end, but clearly he worked. So I guess um, I, I, one question I would have is, do you ever get Christians who still condemn you, uh, like that are actual Christians who would condemn you? Uh, you know, it, it, um, I bet there are occasion, occasionally, but it's rare. And uh, the vast majority of Christians that I've encountered have got enough of an idea of the gospel um, to understand that God can redeem, you know, even murder. But there are the occasional times, you know, the most, surprisingly, the most, um, uh, the, I've received that the most from the pro-life movement. Not the abolitionist movement, not that, but so, uh, you know, I think that, and I think a part of that comes from the fact that I've had people say, you know, we don't need somebody fighting abortion that has a past like that, right? And I, I, I think that the thing is, is that because I fight abortion from, you know, a not, uh, a not incremental approach, you know, total abolition, that they, they, they find that, that they have a harder time accepting you. the pro-life movement in and of itself. But it, oh, I would say majority, no, I would say that uh, the vast majority have, have, have accepted, they understand grace, they understand the gospel and how it works. So what, then what would you say to people who might say that you don't deserve freedom or forgiveness? Oh, oh well, it's true. I mean, it, somebody that thinks that they deserve salvation don't understand the gospel. Somebody that doesn't think that a murder has, uh, uh, deserves to be forgiven doesn't understand the gospel. Because the fact is, is none of us deserve given if we got what we deserved we would all have a one-way ticket to you know eternal damnation but thankfully we don't get what we deserve we don't get fair we get we get mercy we get grace we get we get a righteous and holy God who uh, who can be both just just and the justifier of sinners through sacrificing his own son on our behalf to impute his righteousness on us you know, so there's nothing inherently good at all about us at all. It doesn't matter if you're a murderer or you tell a white lie. We're all eternally separated from God by nature, and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So, of course, I don't deserve salvation, but neither does the person that that thinks that they're a righteous person. Exactly. In fact, uh, Jesus speaks quite openly in multiple parts of scripture, especially in the story of the Good Samaritan, that he who thinks is righteous is the one who actually is condemned and that God says he basically, the, when the one sheep comes back, that's when heaven rejoices, not for the the 99 who have been chilling out righteously on the hill. So uh, I think that's I think that's a beautiful thing to put it, and the fact that you just own it, yeah, none of us deserve it. I mean, to hate someone is to commit murder, and everyone's at least hated somebody. Uh, you know, that's just the, the nature of it. So uh, to anyone who wants to get involved in pro-life or the abolition movement or anything, what would your biggest advice be? Yeah, so I, I would... I would, I would, uh, the way I'd put it is that I think that it, that fighting against abortion, abortion ministry in and of itself, we got to even be careful saying it like that, because I think that this isn't a special calling. I believe that this is the calling of the body of Christ as a whole. Now, what, now what your part in the fight against abortion may be different than my fight, right? And how I approach it. But I do believe that this isn't a special calling. This isn't something that uh, is just necessarily a ministry. I believe that this is uh, fighting for the preborn, seeking to uh, abolish abortion, is is the obligation of the entire body of Christ as a whole. Um, so I would actually encourage everybody to, in some way or another, take part in the fight against abortion. See what they can do, how they can get involved. I mean that's that that's great um, because you know, like you said not everyone maybe can be the guy who can stand in front of a whole crowd and just speak directly against them but some somebody might be doing more of a financial thing or the back ends do helping with paperwork yep. or to just help but in some way 
some way, though, we, we got to all be in this together. Absolutely. And that is something that I've been really passionate about because I know a lot of Christians are passionate. They just, they're like, well, what do I do? And it's like, well, anything <laughs> at this point, right? Anything to help the, this movement, help, help us stop legalizing murder of countless of innocent children. And, you know, that's, that's got to be... You know, that's not, it's not an optional mission. It's not, God didn't call only some of the body of Christ to stand up for the, for the naked and oppressed. He, he called all of us to do it. So, um, I think that's beautifully put. So, um, so to, uh, those, now uh, some people really, I, I know some people, um, in my church that I pastor and I have one particular person I can think of that always really struggles with the idea of how can God love me and forgive me? And it's uh, this constant, like, you know, just really getting down and on in their own sin, really. So uh, those who struggle with finding forgiveness for their deeds in the past, what would your greatest also advice be for them also? You know, I, I would say that God is love. So the thing is, is all they have to do is fall upon the grace of God. There's nothing they need to do. They need to just come to a place where they, where they, where they're just in total awe of the, of the, of the nature of God Remember, the Bible says God is love. So, and by his nature, he is love, and he wants to extend that love to his creation. And so we just got to come to a place of awe where we realize that this is a God who has forgiven me. He's merciful. He's faithful to forgive me when I, you know, when I, when I, when I sin against him. Uh, of total, I, I, I would just say come to a place of total surrender to the Lord. To realize that there's nothing that the blood of Christ cannot cover. No sin. That is, uh, if God, for example, if God can save Paul, if he can save Moses, if he can save uh, David, if he can save Jake Eakin and use them for his glory, then he can save anybody. Absolutely. He can forgive anybody. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, I say this all the time. The God who is the author of the moral and righteous law uh, gets to choose whether or not he can forgive someone of that of committing against that moral and righteous law. For example, I mean, a judge gets to dictate certain things to the, um, to those, the criminal, right? And so it's like, he's the righteous judge. If he chooses to forgive you, he's forgiven you. You gotta, you can't go by what you feel, right? You can't just keep going off. Yeah. You can't go off emotions. You got to realize that the Lord has forgiven you and watched you. And your security is there. Your security is in him, not in you. So don't get down on yourself. So so anyway, uh, then I guess one of the things that really, uh, that's why I do the church split. I, I do this channel because I have a real desire for unity through truth, even if it's offensive, but not being jerks about it, right? But we could be, we could be talking about truth. And, you know, there are certain areas where, you know, the Christian church might disagree and that's okay. We can disagree in certain small minor areas, you know, but we need to be united together, especially under Jesus Christ and the mission he has us here for. Um, so the church, yeah. though, unfortunately, is very divided today. Uh, it's got guns pointed at everyone left and right. So what do you believe that your particular ministry can do to help unite the brethren? You know, I think I think that I when I when I go into churches, when I see uh, especially the youth, I see that a lot of them are kind of looking for something to fight against for, right? I, I, I they're looking for a mission. They're looking for something to be passionate about, right? And I think that abortion is one of those things because for me, you know, it really does. It when I, I have a passion to fight against this, and so I think that that's something. Uh, you know, the fight against abortion could be a very unifying thing and actually give a lot of like the youth in our church a passion for Christianity where, you know, a lot of them just, uh, you know, they, they don't feel like a, that Christianity has a lot to offer them, you know? And so it will give them that purpose and that aim and that direction. And so that, that's been a focus for mine because I really do believe that we have to pass the torch down. Right. Uh, that, that, that should always be our goal as parents is you, you want to train up, the next generation of people that would come after you to fight against something uh, or to uphold principles, you know, biblical principles. And so for me, I think that uh, the youth are crucial in this is that it could be a unifying thing for the body of Christ when they, when they gather, when they, when they have a common aim, like fighting against abortion, it could give them that purpose, that drive and that dedication and passion. 
I'd agree. And then also, because what that does is it creates a singular mission, something moral that we can all, intangible, we can all fight for. We can all fight against mm -hmm. this evil. And I mean, who, who doesn't agree? I mean, in the church, I mean, there's probably some, but the vast majority of the church all agrees that abortion is evil. Exactly. And so, you know, so it is something that we can unify around. Exactly. And then also if we focus more on the big things like the power of the change of the gospel, the, you know, what, Amen. what the grace of God can truly do, uh, what it means to be created in the image of God and fighting against the oppressed, especially those without a voice, man. Oh, yeah. Yep. If we could, I mean, you get, you get some of the youth out there in the streets ministering the gospel and stuff and you just see the fire. Lit. Yeah, absolutely. You just see them light up in passion. And well, that's and I see it too with the young people in my church. One young man, especially, he has completely changed his life around since the gospel got into his life. And you know, that's like it's like okay. And if we focus on these big missions, the big ones, then I, I think we would have a lot less time to squabble over the little things like uh, your oh, exactly. your particular view of Revelation, for example. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I always tell people whenever I see people on Facebook, for example, because Facebook is a perfect example of this, just, you know, fighting and, uh, you know, debating and all that. Right. I think that the, that happens when you're not out there in the mission field. That happens when you're not focused on, you know, advancing God's kingdom. You know, uh, if you're actually out there being a father, you know, going out there and ministering the gospel and, uh, you know, taking the Great Commission seriously, living for Christ fully, you don't have time for those other things. Yeah, that's that. that yeah, there's a lot of truth to that too about wh where you're focusing on. I and I should probably get better at that. I engage a lot online, but I also do that a lot in my downtime at work. But it's one of those things where it's not. Well, uh, I, with moderation, I think it's it's it's, it's a necessary thing. But well, know, some people say you can always tell though when people are getting really really uh, combative and like you you see the you know the basically people destroying each other. That's when they need to get. They need to focus back on the very basics. Thing. Absolutely. They need to get back to serving the Lord. They need to get back to you know the very elementary principles of the gospel. Well, and that's why for me, like no matter what, when we're when I having even if you're if you're online having conversations with people, you know it's hard to understand someone's tone through a keyboard. So the best thing to do is yep. oh, if you're going to engage someone maybe on there, to do so as gently and as, as respectfully as possible, especially with other Christians. That's one of the things I've been shocked by how Christians treat each other, especially online. Uh, but uh, but honestly, uh, you know, when it comes to this, I think you're right. I think something the entire church can unite around is a mission for the gospel and a mission against abortion, you know, and that is something we need to be united around. So I, I, I really appreciate that thought. And I think, you know, you are the perfect person who can actually give that mentality because you can say, Hey, look, I've been on both sides of this, you know, this issue. I've lived literally on both sides of this fence. And, uh, this over here is where grace exists. This is where God exists. This is where righteousness abounds. And I, I really appreciate that about your ministry, Jake. So is there anything else real quick you wanted to add before we wrapped up? No, actually, I think I'm going to have to end pretty quickly here because my battery is almost dead. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jake, for coming on. I appreciate it, everyone. This Jake Eakin. Uh, we're going to leave all his links to things in the in description below. Also, if you want to support his ministry, you can give financially on their website that we'll also leave in the description below. So, Jake, thank you for being here today. and Keep up the good work on the fight against abortion, all right? All right. Yeah. God bless you. God bless you.